welcome, Legionaries, to episode three of Legion Cast: Galaxy in Flames by Ben Counter. I am Warwick, and joining me is my friend, Legionary Brandinius. Wow, Legionary Brandinius, that was flattering. It just hello, my Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, Adeptus Custodes. Welcome to Legion Cast. Dude, I had a great time with this book. Like, I've I've read it a couple of times, uh, a couple of, like. I haven't read it for a couple of years, but I've read it multiple times in the past. But this time around, like, it hit me in a whole new light. And and I always thought it was good. But, like, I kind of got... I, I got so deep into the series a while back that I kind of got burned out on all of it altogether. So um, they all kind of started to run together. So revisiting them in this more kind of, um, like, uh, kind of breaking down kind of fashion like we're doing... Uh, has really helped me appreciate this book a lot more, and it's it's really climbed my list of favorites. So, uh, I, how do you feel about it? I I love this book. I think it's it's a really really good one. Um, I'm excited to break it down and uh, get into the nitty gritty details of it. But uh, before we get there, I want to know what's on your hobby table. Dude, I picked me up a Sakaran, and I haven't picked it up or I haven't put it together yet. But I also got me the plastic Leviathan Dreadnought. And I need to get to the hobby store this weekend. I, it's all put together except for the elbows down to the arms. But I'm going to magnetize the whole thing. I need to get to the hobby shop and pick up the right kind of magnets. And then the other thing on my hobby table that I, I don't want to like give too many details here. I want to like get some done and then post pictures on our social medias. And maybe get a little, little bit of feedback there. But I found... A kind of a theoretical way of doing bases, and I've told you about it, but like I said, I don't want to share too many details. You talked about it last episode. Oh, I did? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to do like the, the marble bases with the, the acrylic putties and stuff like that, so um, I haven't had a chance to get into it yet because I don't actually have anything base ready yet, so hopefully this weekend I'll be able to get some paint down on something and uh, actually base a couple of things and see how they turn out. So that's, that's my hobby table. What about you? Yeah. So I have had hobby ADD over the past couple of weeks. Um, I have joined a middle earth battle companies league at my friendly local game store. Uh, so I have been painting up men of Minas Tirith. Uh, that's been a, a fun project for me while rage watching the rings of power. Um, but uh, you know. So, did you watch the the other two episodes? Because I know we watched the first one together. I did. A uh, friend of the show of ours uh, asked me to watch episodes two and three. Um, spare yourself and just move on with your life. Go read the Silmarillion. Yes. Or the next Horus Heresy book, or both. Yeah, or both. <laughs> um, no. But uh, now I'm I'm back to Heresy now that I've got those guys painted up. And I am currently working on, and just started today, a missile launcher heavy support squad. So, nice. looking forward to getting those guys done. I've also been running my 3D printer almost 24-7 since I got it. Printed myself out a, dr a full Contemptor Dreadnought that uh, I am going to be putting together shortly and getting that painted up as well but uh lots of pro lots of projects on my table 
it's really just I need to pick one and focus on it. Right on. Right on. Sounds good. Um, let's see. What are you uh, excited about um, for like the new releases or the, the previews? So uh, for the upcoming models and the uh, you know new material coming out from GW, uh, we all saw the new Horus model, which I think they killed it. And you know, he's, oh, absolutely. Looks like he's coming, he looks, looks awesome. like he's coming straight straight off the field of uh, Istvan Five, which we we haven't gotten to yet in the books. But um, he, it's it's a pretty brutal scene, and I think that model really captures every single second of it. So, yeah, he he looks great. Um, I I love the look of the model. My one gripe is why is this model not plastic? Oh, it's resin. It's Forge World resin, uh, which again, Forge World resin is not the worst stuff on Earth. You know, looking at you, oh, fine yeah. cast. Um, but <laughs> I just I don't know that it seems like that it would have been a great kit to make plastic. Uh, right. Now they have said that it, it he's that that model is supposed to be like kind of where they're moving the new addition to which is middle heresy um getting closer to terra and so they said that they're going to redo like they they did announce i believe that they're going to have the demon primarchs come out in um yikes uh for for heresy as well so i'll be excited to see them some of the primarchs though I, i do wonder you know are they going to do a full run of primarchs because like what are they going to do with some of them other than right. give them an alternate pose and slap a higher price tag on it. It's usually what it ends up being. Um, I would like to see uh, like Jagatai Khan on a bike, maybe. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of a funny thing, you know, with white scars is every time they release a new white scars character, he doesn't have a bike. Yeah. Why? It, they, they, again, that's like, that's one of those GW things where they totally miss the mark. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's the easiest it's the easiest thing to do. Yeah, it, it's like it's it'd be like putting out a Raven Guard character with no jump pack, or right. I I don't know a, an Imperial Fist model who's not a tool. <laughs> yeah, uh, spoken like a true Iron Warrior. Um, hey, yeah, Iron so within, the, Iron without. The um, the horse model is pretty badass. Uh, I really like it. Um, I don't know what they would do with an alternate Gilliman. Maybe uh, make him like more battle scarred at like post Kalth because the the one that they have now looks like he's just he's part of a parade right now, which is kind of cool. Um, it's very Gilliman, but um, there's also a scene in one of these books where he is trapped in a room with no armor on, with uh, like ten uh, Alpha Legion Marines. And he bodies every single one of them with no armor on. So, like, we—I cannot wait to get into that book. Um, yeah, but like, that's that's the one that I really, you know, I had thought in particular. I was like, they, they can't do a full run of these because what are you going to do with with Gilliman? He was the first one that came yeah. to mind because he really ha- doesn't change through the heresy. I mean, and then like you look at like somebody like the lion. What are they going to do? Give him a broken sword? Like that that's really right. it. Or like um I think Korax they could do one because like 
uh, after Istvan five, he loses like half of his war gear, and I, I don't think he ever really gets it back. So yeah, they do actually they, in the rules have two profiles for him: one that's pre pre Istvan uh, and one that's post Istvan. Right. And from everybody I've talked to who runs Raven Guard, they're like, unless we're playing narrative. And even if we're playing narrative, I'm still taking Prius to Van Korax. <laughs> um, they could do a Vulcan model that's just like a smoking crater or a coffin. Or... <laughs> Ooh. Maybe cut that. But, uh... <laughs> okay, well, if, if we're going to get grim here, they could do a, uh, a post-Istvan Ferris Manus model. Oh, yeah, it's just... Um... Let's not... Let's God, not... Which, spoilers! Which... Spoilers! Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a pretty good book too. I'm that is a great book. I'm looking book. forward to a lot of these. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a lot of these for different reasons too. Like later on, there are some really terrible books. Yeah. So uh, on on that note, should we should we get to uh, discussing Galaxy and Flames? Um, uh, let's mention the Libra Imperium and Libra Mechanicus real quick. We're getting two new books for the Horus Heresy. Um, range i guess you'd call it um gonna be like the imperial army and the adeptus mechanicus which i'm excited about because i love me some mickey boys so, the the custodian guard is also in the Liber imperium oh okay i, I figured they'd kind of get their own thing but no that makes sense too um i don't know if i'll pick up mechanicus for 30k i've got them for 40k but uh maybe I don't know. Maybe one of these days. I doubt. Well, and it's it's kind of a weird thing because they don't port directly all that well, and then the Mechanicum also they have some models, but they don't have everything they really need. Right. Um, and we'll we'll get into it when we get into the books. But the Mechanicum really goes under through a deep transformation in the Heresy. So what comes mm-hmm. out of the Heresy is really not the Mechanicum that went into the Heresy. And they do a good job of reflecting that in the in the rule sets, but it makes it so that you can't really they're not really cro- as cross compatible as like the custodies are, who, which you can literally build an army and have a thirty k army and a forty k army. Right. Well, um, that's pretty interesting. It's yeah, it, the, the changes that the Mechanicum goes through are pretty intense, but there's a whole book about that too, which um, uh, we're looking forward to getting into. So. I think with all that being said, let's go ahead and break this book down. Welcome back, Legionaries. We are on to the book section here, and the book that we are talking about is Galaxy in Flames by Ben Counter. Uh, This being the third book in the Horus Heresy series, um, and we start out and we are still with the same cast of characters uh, that we have been for a while now. Uh, But some things have changed since book two and false gods um and it's made pretty apparent here from the let go um so with that i think warwick i'll let you kind of kick off the intro of where we're at in the book um and i will provide color commentary as usual 
Okay, so I think the story kind of takes place, or starts off, where the, the ship, the Vengeful Spirit, well, the, the whole 63rd Expeditionary Fleet, is in transit to the planet Istavan 3, because uh, there has been... Um, so the... So where the story starts off is the 63rd Expeditionary Fleet that we've been following around so far is in transit to the planet Istvan 3. The system Istvan is the site of a new rebellion, which uh, the commentary in the fleet is like, this is this is happening a lot more often, um, which is a little unthinkable. It's kind of unheard of. You know, compliance is compliance is compliance. Worlds don't rebel. They either accept the Imperial Truth wholeheartedly or they're a smoking crater yeah you know i think it they do a good job of kind of explaining how this this rebellion seem to be popping up a bit and i think that this the the it shows a bit of naivety in in our characters to think that this wouldn't happen like this is just the expected result right. in my opinion when you're running a galaxy spanning crusade um, and just conquering world after world after world at an incredible rate. The Great Crusade, think about the size of the Milky Way galaxy, and the Great Crusade only takes 200 years. Like, they just move at lightning speed through here. And once the once the expedition fleet leaves, these planets are back on their own with potentially billions of people who are like, okay, well, these people left. Well, we're just going to tell them to fuck off now. They, ha- they left a small contingent and a governor... Like, it just didn't right. seem realistic to me. It's not a realistic like they're, system. They're towards the end of the crusade. So they, the the crusading forces would leave behind a planetary governor, a military contingent, and a civilian element of iterators and these kind of cultural drivers that would help install the uh, imperial truth. Now, towards the end of the crusade, those resources have got to start getting exhausted. And I think we really saw that... Um, in the last book where that Imperial governor was resentful of being left behind, being, uh, you know, left out of the rest of the glory kind of consigned to this, uh, ignominy of being stuck on some backwater world to take care of. And that's where you start to see a lot of rebellion, especially when the civilian element of installing the new culture is under a lot of strain from being stretched so thin. So uh, that's kind of my perspective. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, you know, from both sides there, the the Imperials that get left to govern these planets, they don't want to be there. They want to be with the rest of the Crusade. And then the civilians who they are now, you know, being lorded over, don't want them there. Uh, So it's, it's two rebellions in a row here. Now, one of those rebellions wasn't really a rebellion. That was more of a setup. But this one also... A rebellion and it just it really doesn't surprise me i guess like i i would expect these things to be popping up all the time yeah uh me too it it's weird that it hasn't happened on a grander scale or more often but um i'm not there's there's a little bit of exposition later on in the book that this feels like definitely some some pieces being moved around on the other side of the board. So this doesn't feel like an organic rebellion to me. So we'll, we'll get into that when, when we get into that. But so the, the fleet is moving through the warp to Istvan and while they're in transit, we open up to this scene 
of uh, the Titan crewman Titus Kassar giving a little sermon in the bowels of the ship. Now, we know that the worship of the Emperor is pretty well forbidden, but the like the holy materials, the Lacticio Divinitatis, his Divinitatis, uh, Divinitatis, has been um, being distributed among not just the ship's crew, but the entire fleet and beyond that. It is uh, kind of gaining a, a pretty strong foothold in the, the kind of uh, all the nooks and crannies of the this freshly forming Imperium, which is based on this you know, completely atheistic, atheistic, secular truth. You know, there are no gods, demons, spirits, whatever. Uh, but now the, you know, every element of the crusade and the empire itself has kind of started to grow into this, uh, or this religious worship of the emperor. Now, yeah, it's, um, it, it kind of speaks to something I, I kind of found interesting in this because it, it I think it really navels kind of human nature really well i don't think we we don't make a secret here that you and i are both christian guys and one of the things that they they teach in christianity is that human beings have a natural yearning for god and i think you see that here um these people they need to worship something higher than themselves now the christian god doesn't exist in the warhammer 40k universe so they have filled it with the next best thing they can find which is worship of the emperor but even the um you know even the astartes like they just have an ironclad faith in their primarchs for the most part or you know not necessarily a religious style belief but they also have an intense loyalty to the emperor so they're always there's always some kind of yearning for a higher power here um and i I just think that really speaks to how we are as people even these people who are so far beyond where we are now and advanced that that secular idea of you know we can just science and reason everything it just fell i mean it fell apart in spectacular fashion in under two books to the point where kirill sinderman once the prophet of secular truth is now attending these lecticio divinitatis gatherings uh based on what he's seen with his own eyes and he's like there is clearly a higher power out there so I'm going to get good with the one that I want to get good with. Right. So that's where we open up because this sermon is from the perspective of Kirill Sinderman. And uh, Kirill is of a mind that Titus Kassar is doing his best, but he's kind of ham-handed with his delivery. Uh, he's, he's not the best uh, sermonizer, so to speak. But um, the important part of this little scene is that there are members of every facet of the crusade here. Well, there aren't any Astartes, but uh, there are uh, Medicaid people, dock workers, uh, regular army troopers, uh, flight crew, everything. Uh, You know, deck crew, uh, you name it. And, uh, you know, they've got their sermon going on, and then a little later on, they start to hear gunfire. And... You know, they're, they're not super worried about it. And then uh, Cinnamon is like, they found you, you have to run. And so they, they break up this little gathering and they they eventually figure out that um, uh, the uh, Horace's equerry Malagurst is regularly sending out these hunting parties to break up these meetings of the Laetitia. So... They they now know it's becoming a lot more commonplace that they are they're under heavy scrutiny. The war master is always looking for these um, these 
zealots to uh, hunt out and destroy. So they yeah, and we we get a good sense of that throughout as we continue in this the section uh, or in this part of the book on the way to Istvan that there's been a real crackdown on the war master's ship and presumably throughout the fleet. Uh, the remembrancers have been really restricted on what they're allowed to do. They're basically on house arrest. They're confined to their quarters and they they can't leave like a certain deck of the ship. Yeah. To the point where even, you know, permission from an Astartes is not enough. It has to come from uh, what's now known as the Lupercal's court, um, which is functionally the upper echelon of the sons of Horus command staff to the point where um you know we we come to this scene with loken in the training cages and he's given these remembrancers permission to be there and that turns out to not be enough melager shows up with uh, a couple of a couple more astartes and basically says loken you can't do this anymore they have to go back to their rooms take them away and loken is basically powerless to do anything about that and keep in mind that Loken was, up until the events of the last book, he was a part of that upper echelon, you know? He was, he was part of, well, he's still part of the Mornival in name only, but, you know, the Mornival held so much esteem that, you know, his word carried quite a bit of weight, but it doesn't really mean anything anymore. It's, it's the, the War Master's will is that these civilians have no more, you know, no more rights, basically. They, they're confined to their quarters. They don't get to do anything. That's it. Yeah, and they do a really good job of kind of showing that um, Loken is kind of on the outs with the Legion. Uh, like one of the points that he really hits on is when he's talking to Mercedes Oliton and to Kirill Sinderman, uh, he's training alone. Um, and it's told from Mercedes' perspective, and she talks about how she misses like the banter she would see between Loken and other Astartes, but he's just alone now. Um, and it's just him, and he seems really kind of sullen and withdrawn, and almost like, you know, I, I think he says, you know, kind of to the power of, I don't know this Legion anymore, um, I don't know when our ideals died, uh, stuff like that. And uh, later on in this, uh, well, when they're getting ready to um, strike at Istvan, um Loken's buddy Nero Vipus says, oh, this is just like Davin. And Loken's like, this is nothing like that. We've changed so much. Like, you know, when when did we really start to experience this? Was it 6319? Was it uh, murder? Was it, you know, the dealings with the Interrex? But like, when when did all of this take root? There's not really a solid answer for it because it's it's a mix of so many of these things. Yeah, and um, I, I, I do, again, I want to, give kudos to Ben counter because I think he does a really good job of showing that there's just a, there's really a different feel when we're in the, the vengeful spirit. And it, it's something it's really powerfully done when it's done through the medium of a book right. of like, you can feel the tension when we're with Loken walking through the, you know, the halls of the vengeful spirit. Now the other, um, a lot of this, this first section is Horace kind of explaining the Istvan um, situation to the Astartes, but really the more interesting story, in my opinion, is with the Remembrancers. Um, so we, Euphrates Kila, who we saw banish the demon in the last book, um, who has been in a coma now for a while, she is now being referred to as a saint of the Lectitio Divinitatis, 
and Kirill Sinderman gets a vision that the saint is in danger um, and that he needs to to help her. Right. Um, so a lot of our time with them um, is kind of these members of the Lectitio Divinitatis helping him and helping Mercedes get to uh, Kila, who's in the Medicaid bay. Um, and we find out that she is actually being pursued by Magard, who was uh, Petronella Viva's former bodyguard, who apparently has been gene hanced And I don't they never really say specifically, but I believe kind of just and the way he's described that he is on the path towards becoming a legionnaire. Um, I think we would call that a demiastartes because he's too old to receive the all of like the gene seed implants or the gene seed implant itself because once you're past a certain stage of development, I don't think the human body is very receptive to it. I know um, some of the the old space wolves did it, like um, uh, Lehman Russ's uh, like original. Uh, like band of brothers or followers that he had on Fenris, they were all old men when the emperor showed up and they're like, we don't want you to leave us behind here on Fenris. Well, you know, you go out and conquer the stars. We're going to take any chance. So we want the full treatment, but like someone like Corferon from the uh, word bearers, he was too old as well. So he didn't take, he didn't receive the gene seed implant. So he's what you would call a demiastartes that has, um, some of the same implants, but not all of them. And then he's got like other augmentations that would put him on the level of an Astartes, but he's not really the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's just not gone. It is. I know what you're talking right. about. It's gone into detail. We'll actually see it um, in book six. Uh, I believe is the first time we see a true Demi Astartes in Luther, but uh, they don't really, he, he, he doesn't really explain. He just says that he's been enhanced through surgeries. Um, it doesn't say that, he's not on the path of being a legionnaire or that he is. So I just kind of wasn't sure there. It, I mean, it, it really could go either way. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. The point is, he, uh, so Maggard has kind of carved him itself a little niche within the Legion to act as the war master's hand kind of behind the scenes. So, you know, if, if Horace says, you know, so-and-so is making a ruckus, they need to get silenced. You know, Maggard shows up in your room and you get, uh, suicided, basically. Yeah, the the thing with the Astartes is, um, unless they're the Alpha Legion, everybody notices an eight foot tall dude and two tons of power armor. So when a when a lighter touch is required, they just send a demi Astartes instead. Right. Uh, but I, I, it's it's a it's an interesting and it's a good um, bit of of plot line here where they're running through the ship. Uh, in the beginning there, and um, we we get to see Keela use more power. Um, she actually freezes Magard. So there's, I think there's uh, some really good character buildup here because um, Kirill Sunderman has to find a way out of his quarters. His his quarters are under guard because the, you know the War Master is suspicious of these naysayers. So. He, he had lies to some guards saying, you know, Malagurus gave me permission to go see my friend in the hospital. He gets out after he has this prophetic vision, and he actually sends to a couple of people for help. He sends to Titus Kassar and the other Diazire Moderati, Primus, um, Jonah Arukin, who Titus Kassar is a very devout emperor worshiper, 
And Jonah Arukin is in this weird kind of in-between place. Like, he's very unsure of the galaxy as it is. So he's like, he's kind of looking for faith, but he doesn't know how to do it. So sometimes he'll attend these sermons. He's very leery about doing it because he knows if he gets caught, that's the end of his career. And he wants to be a, a Titan commander so bad, you know, he's, he's very terrified to attend these meetings. So... Titus Kassar and Jonah Arukin show up to help Kirill Sinderman save Euphrates Kila. Now, Maggard shows up and they kind of, the, the Titan crewmen draw their sidearms and start laying down suppressive fire down the hallway. And Maggard takes cover, but they're not quite quick enough. You know, Maggard was already this awesome bodyguard assassin kind of guy. And now he's got, you know, muscle implants and, you know, these uh, awesome, even inhuman reflexes now. So he eventually gets a beat on these two and opens fire. But as soon as he pulls the trigger, time kind of stops around him. And when they turn, when the Titan crewmen turn around and look at Euphrates, you know, she is awake in her medical bed, uh, basically holding her hand out and stopping the bullets. So this is, yeah, she's, she's Neo. Yeah. She's, she is the one. But she's she she's good old Keanu. This is the uh, the second example of her doing some kind of miraculous thing. So it's definitely um, a it definitely reinforces Titus Kassar's faith. It pushes Kirill Sinderman well over the edge into front you know, over the edge from arch prophet of secular truth to, you know, the new um, prophet of the, the emperor's word. And then Jonah Arukin is is just kind of dumbfounded by the whole thing. He's still not sure what to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really an interesting and, and good storyline. Um, and you get to uh, one of the things I really like about it is you get to you get a kind of an appreciation of just how big the vengeful spirit is because they're they hide for weeks um, after this, and it also gives you an idea of how big the Lactitio Divinitatis is because they have crewmen all throughout the ship hiding them feeding them um moving them keeping them safe and uh it's, it's really interesting but uh if i could i'd like to jump to more the the astartes side of things here and talk about what's going on there it's it's gonna be um, tricky um it's gonna be tricky jumping back and forth because ben counter did such a good job of weaving these character arcs together it's not like uh, the last couple of books where it's broken up into like three or four parts and we can talk about those parts one at a time so yeah, the, the whole the whole novel just kind of flows, um, and and it's good. And it, what's great about it too is that it doesn't cover a ton of time, but it feel it, it this whole story feels complete. This this entire situation takes place in maybe a week uh, from start to finish of the book. It's but it it's just told very very well. Uh, but when we while this is all going on with the the remembrancers, um, the 63rd expedition um and the sons of horus are making rendezvous in the istvan system with the world eaters who we saw at the end of last book with angron um but they are also uh meeting up with our old friends the emperor's children under everybody's favorite lord commander eidolon um there's actually a great scene before where the the emperor's children are with the iron hands clearing out an orc world and there's this speech with fulgrim where he's saying most of the legion is going to go 
with Lord Commander Eidolon and go fight with the Warmaster. And they're all kind of like, why why are we leaving our Primarch right now? But also our Primarch is perfect, so he's, if he said it, it's perfect, uh, because they're kind of douchey like that. But um, then, so they, they make contact with the Emperor's children. And then a new Legion that we haven't met before, uh, Mortarian's Death Guard. Now, I love these guys. Oh, yeah. Um, especially in the heresy era, um, they, and what we learned about them is that they are just very bare bones, practical guys. They don't like ornamentation. Think of the emperor's children and then think of the polar opposite of that. Right. Um, you could not get to more opposite legion. The emperor's children, gold plate engrave, emboss every facet of their armor. The death guard are only allowed like a single like a uh, brass skull, I think. Yeah. Like Mortarian's flagship just has a single brass skull on it, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, like that's it, no more. They don't even paint their armor. Yeah, it's it's all gunmetal gray. Yep. Which is weird because like all the paint schemes, um, I like how the book does it, but all the paint schemes they're like bone white and green. Mm-hmm. But in um, in the book they're just like we don't we don't do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, if from a game perspective, if you really want to nail the spirit of Death Guard, just throw a bunch of gray plastic bottles on the table. They don't need any embellishment yeah. beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Paint your models anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that that would not be tournament legal. No. So, but we we get there, there's now four functionally full-sized legions together at this point because the emperor's children fulgrim did not take very many warriors with him this most of the legion is with eidolon um and this is correct me if i'm wrong here but this is like the largest force that the great crusade has seen since the triumph at olinor and this is all to crush one non-compliant world right so this is a little unusual but you know uh, some people are just like, yeah, this is this is what we need to do to, you know, we do this a couple of times. We we drop the hammer on a couple of these rebellions, and no one will ever do it again. So they're kind of going for the totality effect. Um, the world eaters love it. They're fine butchering civilians. Um, you know, Loken and you know a couple other guys are just like, this is definitely overkill. But you can't argue with the war master. He's already made his decision. Yeah, and. Um... At this time, we get uh, we get this point of this briefing council with uh, with the War Master and with these two other Primarchs and with uh, um, Eidolon. Eidolon. But we also get to meet. Um, there's a fun conversation that I really love between uh, Karn, the eighth captain of the World Eaters, and T- uh, Torgadden and Loken. It's the uh, he's the captain of the Eighth Assault Company. They say assault company like the world leaders have any other kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but kind of it, it, what it talks about, and it, 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 after the last book, you know, you you could look at the world leaders and think that that they are just nothing but berserkers, and that's all they can think about. And we got to get a little bit of a view into. There's a little more nuance to their mentality, and really, what it is is. It, Yes, they are berserkers, and they take pride in that fact. They like we know what we do, and we do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it, their philosophy is really more about going further and hitting harder than any enemy can, 
which is why they are so brutal. Um, and it makes sense when they when he explains it that way. And there's uh, there's a scene towards the end of the book with um, with one of the other world leader captains saying, captain saying, "The world leaders always have to go one step further than the enemy. When they kill our troops, we kill their cities." Uh, and that that. Uh, that just kind of echoes what Karn said. And I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah, it's kind of their philosophy throughout. Uh, but we we get to to meet Karn here, who is a, is a major character. Um, he's, it's very brief that we meet him in this book, but he is a big player in the rest of the Heresy. Um, yep. One of the best books uh, is Betrayer by Aaron Dembski Bowden, and it's all about Karn. Yep. Karn and his best bro. Karn and the best dude of best dudes, Argoltal. But we'll we'll get there when we get there. But um, when when Torgadon and Loken they walk into this Mornaval or this uh, this Lupercal's court, and they're looking around and they see you know some of the company banners, but then they see some banners that they don't really recognize, and they're like, oh, these must just be the banners of the Warrior Lodge because they no longer operate in secret. There's one. There's a. There's two banners in particular that they call out, and for for those of us who already know what's up, we know exactly what these banners are. But for someone who is new to the series, you probably don't know what you're looking at here. Uh, do you want? Do you remember the banners? Do you want to describe them? Um. One. One is like a brass citadel on a red background, right? Uh, oh, it's a brass throne on a pile of skulls. Right, and then the other one is the eight-pointed star. Exactly. So the eight-pointed star is like the de facto um, symbol of chaos undivided, and then the brass throne on the pile of skulls is the, it would signify like the domain or a follower of the blood god, corn. so... Yeah, and I I really do love (laughs) that he picked these two banners to describe, uh, because I think it actually really captures who the Sons of Horus are as a legion, um, particularly on this early turn to chaos. So what do we know about the Sons of Horus? Well, one, we know that eventually that it, Horus is like the Chosen at this point, so all the chaos gods got to be happy with him, thus the eight-pointed star. But his legion are shock troopers. They like to get in and get down and dirty, nowhere near to the level of the world eaters, but that is what they do. They hit the enemy and they hit them hard. So Corn is a perfect god for them. It's just all about that close combat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when when they arrive though, they they meet Abaddon and Aximand, who are still in favor with the War Master. And Horus tells them, "You two are really just here to show solidarity, and that's it. Don't talk. Right. We don't want to hear from you." Um, because like Loken is on the outs, but so is uh, Torgadon because he broke with the lodge after he wouldn't sell Loken out. So the war master basically says you two are here to act like we are still a big, happy family. Yeah, exactly. And then we get, uh, we get some spats with uh, particularly with Angron who likes to run his mouth a lot. Uh, Mortarian is just like, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Um, and then Eidolon is back, and he's really looking to redeem himself in the eyes of the War Master. So he he kind of lays out the plan of, you know, Istvan Three is where the seat of this rebellion is. Uh, we hear about Istvan Five, but it's kind of an abandoned planet. There's like some old Xenos fortresses there, 
but there's no nothing there for us to go for. And then there's some outer orbital platforms that the Emperor's children and Death Guard are going to take uh, before we end up dropping the hammer on on Istvan three. So he kind of spells out this plan, and everybody goes to execute, um, and then we jump to the assault on the orbital platforms uh so the the assault on on these orbital platforms it's the emperor's children and death guard and we get to uh see from the view of oh Saul Tarbis. no i was i was thinking of when the emperor's children were clearing the the orc held platforms ah, yeah i was i was behind so right the emperor's children and the death guard uh team up to take um is it uh istavon extremis it's the moon so yeah. they to, they need to take this moon installation, which is totally inhospitable. The um, you, you know you need to be in an EVH suit, basically, which Space Marine power armor does all of that. But um, Salt Harvitz and this new Death Guard character were introduced to in the previous scene, Nathaniel Garrow, who I'm a big fan of. Um, it's uh, Tarvitz, Eidolon, Garrow, and I think Lucius is there too, but he's kind of off to the side in this scene. Anyway, um, they get tasked with uh, fighting or taking this moon installation and they find out that they've kind of received reports of how this operates, but the Istvanians have these powerful psychic leaders called war singers and they're incredibly powerful psychics. And, you know, we, we see this really cool fight scene and something really interesting happens here. The Death Guard breach and the or breach this moon fortress and uh Gero fights his way in but he gets knocked down by the war singer he gets his like arm and chest crushed and he loses a leg and gets thrown off to the side so um Eidolon and Tarvitz end up charging this war singer to try and take it out and Tarvitz is disabled he gets knocked down in the fight he's not as uh, he's not very badly injured but um, he is disabled for a minute, but he does see this really interesting scene between Eidolon and the Warsinger. Uh, so the Warsinger is doing like this um, this psychic chant, basically, that is invigorating uh, herself and all of her troops. And it's it's making this fight really tough for the Astartes because it's making you know these enemy troops so effective. Now, she lets out this, this war song that is holding Eidolon back, but Tarvitz describes the scene as Eidolon opening his jaw to scream wider and wider and wider, like inhumanly wide and letting out his own piercing uh, war cry. And uh, it, it is so discordant with the scene going on that it disables the war singer just long enough for him to uh, cut her head off and end the fight. And that scene really sticks with, Tarvitz for the leading into the to the next interaction with him and Eidolon because it's a little suspicious that that kind of thing has never been seen from in the stories so he's a little suspicious like is is Eidolon some kind of psych or two is something else going on here so so after that fight Tarvitz is able to recover Garo and get him medical aid and they've got like this this real kind of band of brothers camaraderie thing going on because they have served in other campaigns before this and in the, the next book, uh, we we see Garrow's perspective. So we'll get a, get a lot more backstory on him, but I think he's a great character. And 
yeah that's that that's something that i think could be a possibly an unfair critique of this book is that there's just nothing from the death guard perspective the entire next book is all death guard it's this entire thing from the death guards perspective they they really make up for it uh so yeah it's it's it it all pans out in the end uh did i did i get all that yeah yeah so um you know i think that you know there's some other stuff that that goes on but really the the next big the big plot event here that we see is um is saul tarvitz going to lord commander eidolon and he's like i need to know how you did this like what is going on and eidolon's like oh you know so you want to like maybe distinguish yourself and become one of fulgrim's chosen and he's like, "Oh, you really think I could be a full one of Fulgrim's chosen?" And Eidolon's like, "No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're a line officer, and you always will be. Don't aspire to more. Stay, yeah, stay in your lane." Um, but Eidolon, but Eidolon uh, is like, "Well, maybe you can be something more." And he takes him to the apothecarium, and they go into the secret room in the apothecarium where we meet once again, Chief the cop, Chief. chief apothecary fabius who um for for those of you who know him fabulous bill Bill. that's a meme but uh he's he's in this room and there's like like think of just a mad scientist laboratory is is what's described here like there's described like a head in a jar with bug eyes and just all kinds of wild shit. Yeah, there are like these growth vats and, and big vials and tanks all over the place. And it, it looks like some Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein stuff. Yeah. And uh, so Eidolon explains to, to Fabius that Saul saw his enhancement and he says, oh, do you, you know, do you want one too? And Saul Tarvitz is looking around and like, no <laughs> um but you know what he says is he's like our our legion is the pursuit to perfection how is this perfection and they're like well this was sanctioned by fulgrim and like this is this is his plan that we're doing here you know if you if you want to be kind of on the ends you gotta you gotta get with this program and he's like i think i'll stick to being a line officer and they were like all right well never speak of this and you get out really yeah so that's that's kind of that scene but you see these freakish things and you're like what the hell is going on in the emperor's children and the answer to that doesn't really come until book five yay which is a great great book oh it's such a good book i think we're gonna have to do two episodes for fulgrim but i'm down for that yeah we'll we'll see when we get there um so anyway he goes off on his merry business and like a good soldier who's just been ordered by his Lord commander. He does not say a word about what he saw in that apothecarium. But then we get to the kind of the muster here. Um, and we, we kind of go back to Loken's perspective and there's something kind of odd about this spear tip that's being prepared. Um, do you want to, do you want to get into the, the spear tip? Yeah. So normally a spear tip is formed company by company and like the um, the war master kind of kind of picks his chosen company for this, but Horus himself has gone through and chosen the spear tip squad by squad, which is super unusual because it's like you don't 
want to send units in together that have not fought together very closely. They, they might not be as cohesive. They might not have the same kind of communication standards, stuff like that. What's your perspective on that? I mean, why do you think, um, what do you think the advantages and disadvantages of sending different squads rather than different companies? In? Well, the, the disadvantages are like you said, um, these, these companies fight and, and the Astartes usually do fight together on a company level. So they are very cohesive at the company level. Now, of course, they're cohesive at the squad level, um, but to break up the companies is really strange because these companies work together. Um, so not so putting it like putting a captain in charge of a squad from another company, well, they're going to do what they're told, but it's not going to be the same as if their own captain was ordering them around. Now, the advantages of this are, you know, if, if there's a situation where you have some highly specialized things that you need to happen, um, and you know that this squad from this company is the best at doing that, and then another highly specialized thing needs to come from another squad from another company, but, you know... Right, it's it, like, Lo- it would, Loken is the captain of the 10th company, so when he needs heavy support... He knows who to call in his company. He might not know the squad level, uh, the squad uh, equivalent in another company. So it's really weird that he's getting or he's g- being given command of other uh, another man's troops, right? Yeah, and you know the the most that you would potentially see this in you kind of a real world situation would be like, and I think that they actually have snipers like it would be functionally a sniper squad being broken off to a regular infantry company um that's where i've seen it happen in real world situations but i think at Stardis companies like maintain specialist units like that at the company level right um the only other thing like for for a warhammer perspective the the other thing that i could really think of would be if i don't know like you know it like if you only have one heavy weapons squad in your company and you know that you're gonna need missile launchers and multi-meltas or something like that you might ask for another company to loan their heavy weapons squad to you um if they're not being deployed that's that's the another possibility but something is weird like this is really weird here and i think it talks about like they've never done this they've never done things this way Right. Um, so, so something is afoot. So we forgot to talk about uh, a pretty significant event leading up to this. So um, rewind uh, about a chapter, I think. Th- so this would have been parallel to Magard trying to kill the saint, or trying to kill the saint. Horus has a little séance uh, with Erebus is there, and the Warmaster sacrifices his. Um, uh, head astropath, uh, Ingmay Singh. And we find out from Ingmay Singh's brief perspective, she is the one that sent the warning that uh, Euphrates is going to get murdered. What happens is Horus sacrifices his most valuable astropath and Erebus does a little ritual that summons a demon named Sarkel onto the ship so that the, the war master can communicate with the dark powers. Uh, let's see. Horace basically says to this envoy, you know, 
I, I know your gods uh, need my help. You know, why should I, uh, why should I give them anything? You know, why should I work with you? And um, they, Sarkel basically tells him, look, like if you, if you ever take a mortal wound, it's like, it's not going to kill you. Like no, no blade can hurt you. Um, uh, we can blind the emperor. Like we're the ones that are darkening warp space right now. Um, it, it blinds the emperor and it fouls his plans. So we, basically we're going to cut off the, the warp from the emperor, but we will give you free reign to move through it. So that plays a, a pretty big part uh, moving forward with Horus's plans because the Imperial loyalists are slowed down to a great degree, whereas the traitor forces can move with impunity through the war. Yeah, they're they're slowed down to the point where they almost cannot move. Right. Uh, like, I, it it's a long way from from here, uh, from a book standpoint. But you know, one of the plot lines of the Dark Angels is how they actually gain the ability to tra- traverse the warp again. Um, that. Now that's way down the road from now, but like that, that kind of gives you an idea of how hampered the the loyalists are going to be, um, which is why it makes sense that really after Istvan, there's not a massive pitched battle anywhere, um, because and it, he talks about how he's been sending the some of these legions that are not going to be loyal uh, to him way out in, in the galaxy he talks about how he's mustering the ultramarines at calf um he doesn't really talk about but he's also sent the dark angels out to all these frontier worlds he actually you know he had, he had brought the ultramarines together to try and take him out all in well one fell swoop he doesn't even try that with the first legion he's like i can't right. even do that i just yeah, have to he... spread them out to the point that they can't get back together as a cohesive force Exactly. Um, so he breaks up the first legion. He puts the blood angels on a united front in their own little horror story. And then the ultramarines are mustered at Kalth for their big event. Um, the white scars, um, they're, I don't think Horus really considers them like a super big threat. I think he, he thinks that somewhere down the line, he'll be able to recruit, a big enough portion of them that it won't matter. And they get, they get a pretty good arc themselves. Um, so we, we actually know that Fulgrim is going to bro down with his best buddy, Ferris Manus, the Primarch of the Iron Hands to try and turn him to the traitor cause. And that's in book five. Um, who am I missing loyalist wise? So we went, um, Dark Angels, Blood Angels, Ultramarines, White Scars, uh, Iron the, Hands. The Space Wolves are on their way to go destroy oh. Prospero. Right, uh, so we don't know... at this point, Magnus is still a loyalist. Right, So, and we don't know why... Um, at this point in the story, we don't know why Lehman Russ has been unleashed on the Thousand Suns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know that... We know that the Wolf is on the way to Prospero. Um, the Salamanders are... They're not even... Um, the, the Salamanders in the Raven Guard um, haven't quite been accounted for yet, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, and they're two of the. I, I think in his mind, they're two of the smallest legions as well. Right. Um, so it it's a lot harder for them to to have to muster a, a massive threat to him. But yeah, so I mean, you can see this thing's been getting laid out for several weeks now. Um, but it, and he talks about like Istvan three is the crux of this plan. It is the opening play in in this right. chess game. Um, so when they 
all of these legions are getting ready to to and the plan is you know we're going to go in as a first wave we're going to go hit this capital city and then a second wave will be coming in behind us and it's elements from all four legions as well as the deus irae um is is supporting as well now as they are embarking to leave torgadon and loken are both kind of confused because they don't have the war master's favor and they know it so they're kind of like why are we the ones who were selected to lead this uh and i think they just kind of explained it off as well you know maybe maybe the war master is giving us a chance to earn back his favor um and that's and and they look at a lot of this stuff and you, you really get to see a huge failing point in their characters, which is they just have this blind faith in Horus. Because they're like, none of this makes any sense what we're doing here. It doesn't make sense the level of force we're using against these guys. It doesn't make sense that we're going in squad by squad. It doesn't make sense that we're the ones leading this since we're out of favor. Whatever, Horus knows what he's doing. And right, we trust the Warmaster. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the, the end of it. But... Right before they leave, Loken asks uh, Yakton Cruz, who's another captain. We've talked about him a little bit, but he's known as the Half Herd, and he is like the oldest member of the Legion outside of Horus. Um, but he asks him, he's like, you know, if you get a chance, can you look in on these my friends, these Remembrancers, um, and and look after them because, you know, I just I got a bad feeling and. Once I get back, I'll take care of them, but I would really appreciate it if you would look in on them. He's like, I, I guess so. Right. And Yakton Cruz kind of has this, um, kind of has this poor reputation of being just kind of this, this old relic of another time, this kind of, you know, bumbling dummy that he's just been around too long. He's just this old fossil of, of another age. And, you know, no one really takes him seriously. He's had, he did have one solid moment in um, Horus Rising where uh, his company gets um, assaulted by some of the Megarachnids, but he immediately breaks the back of that assault and kind of proves that he's still a formidable warrior. Well, he's, you know, he's that, kind of the still... equivalent of old man yells at a cloud in the <laughs> Legion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, um, he, he often goes on about how, you know, times have changed and this isn't the Legion as I remember it. And, you know, this, that, and the other is different. And he tells Loken that, you know, when Loken asks this favor of him, he's like, I know you've heard me prattle on about it before, but I really feel it in my bones this time. And we'll and see Loken is kind of like, I think you're right uh, yeah, exactly. at this point, um, which, which is interesting. Now, because of that, it, it's interesting to me. Well, I, I have more to say on Yakton Cruz later, uh, but I, I, I'd like to get to that point before we get there, because I think that there was some mishandling here. But it, it, it points to kind of the one major failing of this book, and I don't really know how you get around it. Okay. Uh, but let's let's get into the Istvan operation before I start talking about that. Right. So um, the spear tip elements drop down, and... Let's see, uh, they go in by drop pod. They don't use any landers or anything. So all the forces they get sent down are reliant on the second wave to get back home. Oh, um, one, one other thing before the drop. Um, Saul Tarvitz and Lucius were both picked by Eidolon to be part of the spear tip of the Emperor's Children element. Um, but before they go down, Saul Tarvitz is 
kind of worried. Like, what what was the alarm bell for him? Do you remember? Um, he well, it, it was everything else that right. everybody else has seen, but Saul Tarvitz is the only one who apparently isn't a moron, and he's like, something stinks here. Right. So he um he goes to um a new character, the Emperor's Legion, Ancient Rylanor, who is uh, a no. I'm I'm sorry, sir. I think you mean Big Daddy Rylanor. Big Daddy Rylanor, who is the, he's like the, he's a dreadnought. So a dreadnought is a, a space marine that has been mortally wounded and can no longer serve as a normal legionary. So they're entombed in this big life support sarcophagus that is armored and given a pair of legs and a set of guns. And they're terrifying to behold. But Rylanor is like the, the keeper of rights or whatever. And... Tarvitz goes to him. Quick, uh, completely off topic here. Who's your favorite dreadnought? That's a big question. Mine's Bjorn the Fellhanded. Uh, but Bjorn's not a dreadnought yet. Well, yeah, but he's my favorite dreadnought because he hates being a dreadnought. Yeah, that's true. Um, yes. Oh man. So if it's not Bjorn, it's probably Rylanor. Um, or no, um, maybe um. There's one in Flight of the Eisenstein in the Death Guard that's kind of cool. That Death Guard one, he's a yeah. badass. Um, is it? Uh, I can't Arcon? remember his name. Yeah. So when we get into the book, I, I barely remember his he's name. He's a but fucking boss. Yeah, that he's pretty cool. But anyway, um, Tarvitz asks Rylanor um, for the honor of instead of taking place in the spear tip. He takes the place of a captain who was killed during the moon assault. And this captain's role was set to be the, um, like the, the communicator. He, so he would be back on the flagship, uh, coordinating the legions from orbit. And it would be Saul's great honor if he gave up his very honorable place in the spear tip and was able to fulfill his, his um, dead comrade's duty. And Rylanor is like, that's very noble of you, Saul. I'll allow you to do that. So Rylanor takes Saul's place in the spear tip and makes sure that Saul has the the basically the um, command post duties. And that gives Saul an opportunity a little later on to uncover like the big the big lie. Uh, anyway, cutting yeah, back and to it, the... it says it talks about though when he does that he's like something about this stinks, and I want to know what it is. Like he's right. the only one out of all of these characters that isn't just like blindly right walking into and, his own doom. And I think uh Pappy Rylanor kind of knows that as well because he he also sees the squad by squad assignments and he's like that's really weird. So he kind of maybe he kind of knows something's going on there and it's implied that he wants Saul to stay on the ship. So cutting back to the assault, um everybody touches down by drop pod. Uh Lucius Rylanor and uh, a couple of their squads are set to take the palace um, and kill the the, the rebel governor. Uh, Loken and Torgadden and all their boys, um, they land on the eastern side of the palace. Um, I don't really remember, but... You it, know, they land in, the t- in these tomb spires. Oh, right, it, like, right. fucks their drop pods up. Yep. Uh, uh, and it, it, there's actually an interesting thing here that I, I, I'd like to get your opinion on. So when they land, they they're, all their trajectories got thrown off by these tomb spires. The drop pods get fucked up, and like they take casualties from it. And what they say is they're like, clearly Intel dropped the ball here um, on 
like doing a, a topographical scan and knowing that these towers were here. I want to get your opinion. Do you think that possibly they did see those spires and dropped them anyway? Oh yeah, I, I think that was. All it's part never of the talked about in the book, but I right. totally think that's what happened. Yeah, I think that they 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 bungled the intel on that on purpose, uh, and and sent some of those in so that there would be less, so that they would suffer more casualties while they took the palace. So the uh, sons of Horus are taking the tombs. The Emperor's children are taking the palace. The Death Guard are taking like a an a, an, an emplacement, like a set of trenches and like um, big gun emplacements. And, yeah, and the they and they have the they have the Diazire with them. Right, they have the Diazire with them, and the World Eaters um, are dropped into the city. And the war singers immediately call all of the civilians to take up arms and go kill the invaders. And the world eaters are just like, this is great. <laughs> we don't care what? about killing civilians. So it, they go ham. It's one of my favorite lines in this book, though, um, where where the world eaters um, are, are getting attacked and they were, they're like, the battle quickly descended into a massacre. Luckily, massacre is our specialty. Right. And there's there's a transmission later on from the, the world leader's captain that's just like, we're killing them with our hands. Uh, like, I think, um, I can't remember who receives that uh, that message, but he's Lucius. just like, it's, oh, it's Lucius. The, he's just like, the world leaders are supposed to also breach the palace. And the, the Emperor's children get right in, and they're like, where the fuck are the World Eaters? And the World but, Eaters yeah. are like, oh, we're really busy. But but Lucius is just like, oh, great, this is an awesome opportunity to shame the World Eaters. So he's he's all about it. He's like, oh, cool, I'm gonna go kill the governor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny that it, it just shows the differences of the legions there, because Lucius is like, I'm gonna show up the World Eaters. Meanwhile, the World Eaters are, like, having the time of their lives. <laughs> yeah, f- frolicking through... Uh, Rivers uh, of blood. Yeah, just, just having a grand old time. Um, that's very morbid. We shouldn't laugh about that. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so all the legions, or all the strike force elements are in their place. Um, like we said, the Emperor's children breach the palace right away. The Death Guard are in their elements, slogging through these trenches. Which, like any battle of attrition, is their element. Like trench warfare is really a iron hand or uh, iron warriors or uh, imperial fist fist kind of element. But like the Death Guard don't care. They're just like we're here to march on bodies. That's it. Um, the world leaders are having the time of their lives. The Luna Wolves are uh, held up by by some very elite elements of the the War Singers armies. So they they're fighting some kind of elite guards. And then the Emperor's children get into the palace right away, and Lucius has this really epic duel with the rogue governor, who has become a war singer. He's got like this kind of like sonic blade or whatever. And during this fight scene, Lucius has this kind of foreshadowing interaction where this this music, the war singers, kind of starts to overtake him, and he feeds into it. And he's like kind of dancing this musical dance of death and uh is able to kind of use this uh war singer power to foresee the uh rogue governor strikes coming in and just takes this guy apart and lucius is all like piss and vinegar at this point he's just like yeah i just killed the bad guy 
you know, I'm going to get all the, the glory for this. Uh, and then about that time up in orbit, Saul Tarvitz has gone to investigate the gun decks. And, yeah, and finds... we should we should talk about why he decided to do that. He okay, he knows that the fleet started to move. Uh, and right. the fleet was moving from high high orbit down to low orbit. And he's like, well, the only reason you go to low orbit is a bombardment. But we we have men down there. We're not going to bombard the planet. So he goes down to the, the gun deck. And he sees that these guns are like being run out and loaded. And he meets this tech priest. And the tech priest is like, uh, is there a problem? Uh, what's what's the issue? And he's like, what's going on down here? And he's like, well, we're doing what you told us to do. And he's like, well, what were you told to do? Well, we're going to virus bomb the planet. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. And um, the, the virus bomb is a very, very rarely deployed asset. There, It's an incredibly dangerous virus that eats all biological material. And it is so so vicious that if it doesn't have anything else to eat, it eats itself. So in like a, th- is it a few hours, it'll basically ravage an entire planet and then eat itself out. So, or um, destroy itself so that basically the attacking force can take a clear field of battle. Yeah, this is, so there's only two people in the entire Imperium who have the authority to authorize virus bombs, and that's the Emperor and the War Master. So, we kind of get this, um, oh, you know, the the veil has fallen here on what's happening, which is, and all all of it kind of clicks into place of why, you know, why the particular people who were chosen to go down were chosen. Um, And basically what what we discover here is that the war master is taking the portions of these four legions that he thinks will not follow him against the emperor. And he is going to eradicate them um, through a virus strike. No more naysayers. Yep. Now Saul is not down with this and he, it's kind of an interesting, uh, his first thought is, well, I have to get down there. Like you just heard right. the planet was about to be virus bombed and you're like, he's let's like, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I need to be. So he steals a Thunderhawk gunship and launches out of the ship. And as soon as he kind of clears, um, clears like a certain distance, he gets hailed from the ship and is like, Hey man, um, what are you doing? Where are you going? You're not supposed to be out there. And he feeds him a line of bullshit. Like I'm on my way to another ship for liaison duties and they don't buy it. And they're like, negative, turn around, come back. And he's like, go to hell. And he takes off. So um, word gets back to Eidolon that Tarvitz is um, trying to get a message down to the surface. And Eidolon is like, oh, launch fighters and shoot him out of the sky. Well, and he kind of says he kind of says this thing of um, he's like, oh, Tarvitz, you know, I thought maybe he could have been useful, but I was wrong. And this is. This is my one this is my gripe with the book. My overarching gripe of the book is who is on Istavan and who is not. Because there are people on Istavan who in my opinion are only down there for the purposes of the plot and there are also like to drive the plot forward and I think you know who I'm talking about. We're going to get there. 
Um, it makes no sense that he's down there. And the bullshit excuse that they give is bullshit, in my opinion. Um, I, kind of, I know where you're going. Yeah. And also, there's like a lot of people in orbit who should have been down there. Oh, and yeah. there's no way that that, like, other than for purposes of we have to drive this plot forward, like, the Warmaster would not have made that mistake. So right. there's just a lot, there's there's a little too much contrivance and I understand why it happened, but I don't like it. Yeah, I get that. So Saul is flying past a ship, and he's being pursued by fighters, and he's doing evasive maneuvers, and he gets hailed by this cruiser that he's passing. It's called the Eisenstein. And who should be captain but Nathaniel Garrow, Saul Tarvitz's good buddy. And Tarvitz is like, dude, the fleet is moving to virus bomb the spear tip. We have to get a message to the emperor that uh, Horus has betrayed the Imperium. You know, we, we are all betrayed. And Garrow has like this crisis, crisis of conscience for a minute. Like, do I trust my buddy or do I follow orders? And, um, you know, eventually he, uh, he comes to the decision. He's got to pull the trigger and he shoots down the fighters that are pursuing Saul. So Saul gets the message down to the surface. We'll get into that later. But Garrow is able to uh, kind of spoof the readings and being like, yeah, um, I shot down Saul, but I think your uh, fighters got caught in the backwash. You know, it's Fog yeah, it couldn't war. be helped. Yep. Sorry about that. But, you know, I, I, I got Tarvitz or I got the I got the rogue Thunderhawk anyway. And then um, he uh, he maintains his place in the fleet even though he's come to the decision that um, this isn't right. More on that later. Well, and he says what he's going to do. He says, he's like, okay, I'm going to break off and I'm going to go warn the Emperor. Right. But he's going he's gonna to maintain position for now and wait for an opening, which is and good. If if you want to know what happens with Nathaniel Garrow, the next, his ship is called the Eisenstein, uh, which we, we know from this book. The next book is called The Flight of the Eisenstein. I think we'll find out. Yeah. So um, what is the the catalyst event that causes uh, the War Master to get all the Remembrancers rounded up? Do you remember? Well, he basically just sends out a flyer and is like, oh, you know, things have gotten really tense between the Legion and the Remembrancers, and I feel really bad about that please let's let's all get together we'll have some reconciliation i'll show you my great triumph on istavan and then we'll we'll move forward you know into the next stage of the crusade together and i mean th this this flyer gets back to mercedes euphrates and kirill and they are just immediately like well this is a trap like it's just uh it's Tom Hardy in Mad Max like that's that's bait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um they they get this flyer and they're um Mercedes and Kirill are like we can't do this. This is clearly a trap. But uh Euphrates wakes up at that point cuz she's kind of been in and out of this coma and she's like nope, we have to go. We have to see. And um oh no, she she kind of wakes up um kind of screaming because she foresees what's happening and she kind of forces this vision into their heads. And so they get like this um, disjointed 
kind of vision or memory of what is about to happen. And they're like, we can't do this. This is terrible. But Euphrates says, no, we have to go. Yeah, and it's described in, like, terrifying detail. Like, it talks about Cinderman watching his hands melt away. Right. No, that'd be terrifying. Um, but they go along with the invitation. They show up in the this, you know, big uh, theater or whatever. And there's this big viewing screen of the footage going on on the with the spear tip. And as they're seeing this, we'll cut back to Saul who touches down on like the palace rooftop and he immediately makes contact with Lucius who has just come from beheading uh, the planetary gut, the rogue governor and Lucius is all like, Oh yeah, I killed him. Saul. it was awesome. And Saul's just like rolls right over him with, we got to get a message out. Um, the, the Istvanians have a virus weapon um, that they're going to unleash. We need to get to cover. You need to get into a, yeah, you need to retreat back. No, he, he shoots it straight with Lucius. He's like, we're about to be bombed oh, right, by right. the war master. And Lucius is like, leaders, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Lucius is like, this is bullshit. I'm one of Fulgrim's chosen. And he's like, um, well, you're friends with me. And that is such a crap, like, I line. It, yeah, it is and it isn't. It's, um, I, I see where you're coming from, but... I think it also plays along with the duality of the emperor's children, how they're very often torn between their, their own self-fulfillment or their own pride and staying loyal to, you know, the, the, the facets of their own like company or squad structure. Right. So I can see from Eidolon's perspective that it's like, it's worth killing Lucius to kill Saul. Yeah, I, I guess. But again, then it comes back to, like, if Eidolon knew that Saul didn't go down, which he seems to have because he knows who took the Thunderhawk. Um, well, I think they find that outpost. I don't think Rylanor tells anybody that Tarvitz took uh, the the other captain's place. So it's, yeah. I don't think it's it's Eidolon's knowledge. And he's such a he's such a up his own ass a-hole that um, I can see him totally overlooking something like that. Yeah. Again, it just, it, I gotta be honest. It rings a little weak for me. I'll, I'll give you that. It's not, it's not the strongest part of the book, but um, mm. I think the rest of the book is good enough that it, it redeems it. So. Don't get me wrong. It's a great book, but like right. I, we wouldn't be fair if we weren't calling balls and strikes here. Nope. You, you're right. You're right. Um, I'll, I'll say that that one's pretty weak. So, he shoots it straight with Lucius. They get word to the Emperor's children that they need to get to cover. And Saul takes off to find the World Eaters. And when he comes up on the World Eaters, he comes up on the captain. I can't remember his name now. Erlen. Um, Earl, yeah, Captain, captain Erlen. He's pretty cool. But he comes up on Captain Erlen, and he's like, uh, Saul gets this perspective of the, the World Eaters' armor was so red with blood, he wondered why they just didn't paint it red. That's such a great foreshadow. I love that. I love that. when authors yeah. do that. Yeah. Like Abnett does it. Uh, Abnett does it in the first book. Yeah. The first time we see the Justerian, they're painted black, like some kind of black legion. Yeah. Oh, I love that shit. Oh, it's so, yeah, I, it's, it's good. Um, but he gets there and he's like, um, well, they're never going to believe me that they're going to get bombarded by their own guys, which, you know, on, in all honesty, if he had rolled up there and been like, uh, hey, Angron's going to kill you, I think they would have been okay with it. And they probably just would have been like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. We'll get to cover. But 
instead he's like the istavanians are rolling up on us to uh with a with a bio weapon we need to get to cover and i've seen weapons like this used before so i know what i'm talking about um and they're basically like all right well we're we can't displace right now or we're gonna get hit hard uh, because they're regrouping and he's like you don't understand we're all gonna die if we don't get to cover so they adopt a formation and they're like look if this doesn't end up being the case here i'm gonna fucking kill you and like saul looks at these guys and he's like i absolutely believe that is the case um but and and then it talks about when they move out that they they do end up getting attacked but um saul is like you know it, it he describes when when they're fighting he's like he's used to the emperor's children uh style of war with feints and counterattacks and all of you know these the, you know it's it's supposed to be war perfected that's like their their mantra and he's like with the world eaters it is just pure unadulterated brutality no more no less right so they call for a general advance to the western trenches i believe yeah because the trenches have imperial built facilities post compliance that have airtight structures that will protect protect them from the virus bombs um meanwhile they're able to get a message to the death guard saying the same thing you know take cover in the in the in the trenches and the bunkers we're about to get struck with something um, the Diaz Irae, we get some perspective from Titus Kassar and Jonah Arukin again. Their um, princeps orders them to make the Titan airtight. They're about to get hit with something. And um, he uh, also Titus, says that the he also says that the Istvanians have a bioweapon. Right. And Titus is like, okay, well, we should probably warn the Astartes. And the um, princeps is like, no. So the, the, the command structure of a Titan is the princeps is at the head. He is the overall commander. The moderati um, control like the movement and the firing of the guns, basically. So that's that's a very distilled way of saying it. There There's like hundreds of crew on board one yeah. of these Titans. If, so if you think about it, if, if you've seen the movie Pacific Rim, when they neurologically mesh with those robots and they need two people so that they can kind of share the load on their brains. That's it. It's the exact same concept in a Titan. And when it's something as big as the Deus Irae, it's, it's three people, um, if not more. Um, and then it'll, it, it'll have systems that are like hardwired in servitors for, yeah. uh, kind of running the guns and stuff like that. It's, it's a very complex operation. But yeah, so, and the one thing that, like, it talks about is that they don't get the warning for this bioweapon that the Estevanians supposedly have. We know it's obviously the virus bomb, but it, it talks about how uh, Turnit, Princeps Turnit, uh, gets it in his personal command channel um, right. that nobody else can hear. And then he's like, that's airtight. And the Moderati are like, that's, that's kind of odd. Um, right why wouldn't you just tell the whole shit or tell the whole Titan, but whatever they get it air, they stop firing, they get it airtight. And then uh, Titus Kassar is like, well, we need to call down to the death guard. 
Um, and he's like, just do what you're told. I'm taking care of it. Or something like that. Right. And then so, they start to see the bombs come through. So the bombs start drop. Oh, and the word does get to the Luna Wolves to get down into the catacombs um, so they can uh, they can get to cover. So Loken, Torgadden, and most of their troops get down into safety. Um, it's very close. And in the next, in Flight of the Eisenstein, we get some perspective of the uh, some of the people outside. And then ancient Rylanor is just out on the battlements watching all this happen because he's in a sealed sarcophagus. This this little section that he takes here to describe this virus bombing, it's just so vivid. Uh, it's yeah. incredible. It's it's probably my favorite spot in the entire book. Um, I, one of the lines, and I'm going to butcher this, and he did it so much better, but he's like, entire kingdoms were destroyed without even within a two hours without even knowing why. Right. Um, pe- people basically breathed in the air. Like the, the, the war master had dispersed the fleet at different altitudes uh, and different locations to disperse this virus in overlapping arcs so efficiently that not a single corner of the planet was left untouched by this virus bomb. And it was, it was super overkill. Nothing should have survived. Luckily, the Astartes were ma- managed just barely to get into cover. And, you know, everybody out in the streets, still out in the streets, melts. You know, any Astartes still outside with um, uh, compromised seals in their suits are melted inside their armor. The, the flesh sloughs off the bones. It's incredibly gruesome. And it even talks about, like, the world eaters were the last ones to get to cover. And one of the things it talks about, which, you know, just to me would be just absolutely horrifying, is that some of the guys, uh, they would have caught it as they were running into the bunker. So they bring it into the bunker and then it runs through the entire bunker as well. Right. So like it, like, and all of this is happening and the remembrancers are up in the vengeful spirit being shown this by the war master. And they're all just horrified and rightly so. Um, it's just a vicious, awful, horrible way to die. So at about that point, um, Euphrates Kila makes Mercedes Oliton and Kirill Sinderman watch this and remember every aspect of it. And then she turns them around, marches straight up to Yachton Cruz, and says something like, uh, they call you the half-herd, but you are a true Chthonian, and you will soon become the voice of the Legion. Um, remember what it is to be a, a warrior of Chthonia or something like that, and see us to safety. And, you know, he uh, Yachton is like, you know, Loken asked me to keep uh, to take care of you or to look in on you, and I think this is what he meant. So, and um, once again, I said I have more on on Yachtin Cruz. One hundred and fifty percent, he should have been on Istvan, and oh, they kind well, of write yeah. it off as like he was like, well, you know, they said if I went along, everything would be okay, but like I just can't go along with this. I'm like, there's no way Horace was like, oh yeah, he's so, on board. I know, I know. In book one, um, Rogel Dorn actually says that Yachtin Cruz is a sycophant, and he'll say anything to stay in favor with the War Master. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of supersedes your criticism a little bit. All right. And and to be fair, to be fair overall, we have not gotten enough character interaction with Yachtin Cruz to know the the depth of his character. This is like the most significant thing he's ever done. 
in the books so far. He's been a side character largely for for all three books up until this point. So I see where you're coming from, but I I don't think there's enough build up to be fair one way or the other. Um, right. I can I could see the War Master putting him on Istvan three just to get rid of him, but the War Master probably didn't see him as enough of a uh, to get any kind of pushback uh, from from this because. Like, like I said, Rogel Dorn specifically called him a sycophant that would say anything to stay in favor. That's why he was never considered for the Mournival. Even though he's the oldest serving member of the Legion and had every right to that position, he never got it because he's uh, he, he'll say anything he's to stay in favor. Too much of a favor. yes man. Exactly. And that's why Loken got it, because he was willing to push back on the War Master. Okay. I'll, I will concede that point. But uh, he basically he leads he leads them out before the slaughter begins and the slaughter does begin. Um, right. The, so the war master basically says something like, you know, this is true warfare. This is what we've been doing for you for hundreds of years, and you write, you know, you you dishonor us, you write terrible things about us, um, and for that kill them all. And then the legionaries open fire. They tear into them with chain swords. It's a terrible massacre. Mm -hmm. Yep. So Yacton Cruz takes them down to, uh, to a Thunderhawk Bay. Um, and he has a fight with Magard. Um, and we get to see that like Yacton Cruz is not a scrub. Um, but neither is Magard. Uh, he gets some help from Kirill Sinderman, who I think almost breaks his damn wrist firing a gun. Uh, but he is able to kill Magard. It was a good fight. Uh, it was an interesting fight scene. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. But they, they take a, a Thunderhawk and they take off. And it, it's just really funny to me in a, in a little bit from now when, when Malakast brings the news that Yakton Cruz stole a Thunderhawk. He's already gotten the news that Saul Tarvit stole a Thunderhawk. And he's like, we really need to get some security on these things. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like somebody just stealing a Thunderhawk with impunity is, is almost as unheard of as me betraying the emperor. It's like, it was never even thought about. <laughs> but uh, so, anyway, they, they, they're out on this Thunderhawk and they're like, well, where the hell are we going to go now? And Keela just like points at a ship and is like that one. And right. they're like, Okay. And they take off to it, and it turns out it's the Eisenstein uh, with Captain Garrow. So, most so, fortuitous. Yakton Cruz, uh, so they get hailed by the Eisenstein, and Garrow is like, you know, what are you doing in my in my firing lane or whatever? Uh, announce, you know, announce yourselves, what's going on? And Yakton Cruz says, I am Yakton Cruz, formerly of the Sons of Horus. And Garrow is like, what do you mean formally? And Cruz says something along the lines like, I cannot be a part of what the War Master is doing here. And Garrow says, then you are welcome on my ship. And when Yakton asks, asks him his name, Garrow comes back with, I am Captain Garrow of the Eisenstein. He doesn't say Garrow of the Death Guard anymore because he's basically renounced in the same way that Cruz did. So they're they're both they're both of a mind. And Garrow just says, then you are welcome on my ship, Yakton Cruz. Yep. So the, the virus tears through um, Istvan 3, and the World Eaters are like, okay, well, the virus has burned itself out. Let's get out there. Um, and uh, Saul Tarvitz is like, no, um, we need to wait. And they're like, what? He's, or why? And he's like, because of the firestorm. 
and basically what has happened is all of this this gas or this virus has caused all of this like noxious gas to form um in eating all of this biomass and uh killing it all so the war master fires a lance strike at the planet and ignites the entire planet into a roaring inferno and it talks about on the command deck of the ds area how they thought that they were going to burn alive um but they don't luckily and this thing just burns across the entire planet um and you know you just get a sense of the they didn't just kill this planet like they they annihilated it there there's nothing should be alive here but luckily since all of these astartes got to cover in time they are alive right and uh yeah it it talks about how the the inferno is so hot that it vitrifies the soil um it melts stone it turns rockcrete into dust you know anything that any of the soup of the decayed flesh left behind would have been melted away and or burned away into nothingness. So when the Astartes finally get back outside, it is just a, a flat, you know, like there's some ruins left that weren't completely destroyed, but it's just this barren black wasteland of burned everything. And the only like big landmark left is just the Diaziri standing out in the middle of the trenches. Yep. And, and the palace, the palace, right, the palace is still is left standing and i i love i love this part because we we walk out and survey the damage with the world eaters and captain erlin is just like this was not the istavanians and saul is like what's the point of lying now no we got betrayed by the war master and they're like yep and then a bunch of world eaters uh gunships gunships come in and start strafing them and so they start taking cover and they're firing las cannons back and all this stuff and this one uh this one gunship stops and drops the ramp on it and captain erlin looks at saul and is like you need to get out of here and he's like no i never retreat and he's like you do from this and angron just comes tearing out of this motherfucker and i mean it it is not an exaggeration to say that Saul shit his power armor seeing Angron. <laughs> like. Yeah. So thousands of world eaters drop on the remaining tr- or on the loyalist world eaters, head, like led by Angron himself, and Angron just starts mowing down loyalists left and right, and Saul Tarvitz is like making this mad dash back through these embattled world eaters to try and relink with the Emperor's children. And he is just running for dear life through this shit show. And um, Angron is just tearing left and right. And eventually, uh, uh, sorry, eventually Saul does get away and makes contact with Lucius. And Lucius is just like, he's pretty pissed about this because he's, you know, in the back of his mind, he's like, the only reason I'm here is because I'm your friend and now you're about to get me killed. And he's still kind of high on this, um, uh, this, uh, feeling of killing the rogue governor and like being the big hero. And then none of it means anything because they have just been betrayed. And, you know, Saul starts kind of dishing out orders. He's like, look, we need to fortify the palace. We need to, um, you know, start with the outer edges and then work our way inwards if we have enough time. And Saul, uh, sorry, um, Lucius is just like, but I'm the hero. Why should I listen to you? And Tarvitz just, like, doesn't even give him the time of day. He's like, look, we need to do it or we're going to die. 
and Lucius kind of begrudgingly kind of like sets about commanding the men to, to go do this while uh, Tarvitz is able to link up with the Luna Wolves too and they're all able to uh, gather in the palace to really fortify the, the, the kind of inner structures to hold out against the, the oncoming tide. Meanwhile, up in orbit, we get back to the vengeful spirit and we get, we get a really funny interaction with the war master. Uh, with, with Fulgrim? No. Oh no, that, that comes a little later. What I'm talking about now is, um, Oh Horus, yeah. So Horus, Horus, is, Horus like, is just Angron, Angron, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> He's like so mad about Angron. Um, and, and Abaddon is like, well, why don't we just bomb him and we'll carry on with our lives and sucks to be a moron, but Angron is one. And who is it? Uh, Malagast is like, uh, the world eaters are really good at what they do. So I don't think we just want to get rid of them. And Horus is functionally just like, I should have seen this coming and I'm going to turn this defeat into a victory and he's like so go ahead and send troops down there we'll dig them out and we'll kill them all and that's what we'll do right so it's like uh angron was under orders to stay on his ship and not get involved but as soon as he saw any of the world eaters still alive down on the surface he's just like well i'm gonna go kill them myself fuck the war master and that that really slows down the um slows down the pace of this uh this victory or this betrayal because now instead of finishing them with a single like orbital bombardment, now they have to get involved with this ground slog and the loyalists make them pay for it every step of the way. Um, Saul Tarvitz really comes into his own here. He's uh, giving this very valiant defense in coordinating all the loyalists to hold the, the palace. The death guard give an absolute Chad showing out in the Western trenches, slowing down Mortarion because he ended up, uh, Mortarion in the traitor death guard touched down to take care of their own in the same way that the death or the world eaters did. And every once in a while, like the loyalists in the palace would be like, Oh, maybe the death guard are finally dead. And then they'd hear a bunch of shelling from the Western trenches. Be like, Holy shit, how are they still alive? Yeah, um, and then the the other main uh, kind of event that we see here is with the uh, with the crew of the Deus Irae. Uh, Titus Kassar is like, this is bullshit treachery. And um, he pulls his sidearm on, on Turnit, and they get into a little bit of a firefight. And Jonah Rukin is kind of going back and forth of like, I don't know what to do. Uh, this is all insane. I can't believe this is happening. And Kassar is like, you've seen the power of the Emperor at work, and you know this is treachery, like, do the right thing. And Jonah ends up just being like, I want to command my own Titan. And he kills uh, Titus Kassar. Um, in the ultimate bullshit move of the year, fuck that guy. I liked him, and now he's an asshole. Yeah, well... I, I don't know that we ever get another character interaction with him again. That's the that's the end as far as I know. Yeah. Um, which, good, because fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, um, it's too bad. Um, I, I, like, I liked Titus Kassar and I liked Jonah Arukin up until that point. Yeah. So we, we kind of hard cut to like several weeks later 
Uh, they've kind of lost track of time at this point, but they're the Emperor's children and Luna Wolves, as they are now, um, no longer Sons of Horus. But they've just been holed up in this palace, just kind of resisting every kind of advance that has been thrown at them. And Saul Tarvitz has really taken command here. And like everybody kind of talks about like what a job he has done in turning this defense and making this debacle into almost a victory. Um, you know, just a victory from the, the standpoint of they are still alive. Um, and everybody's happy about this. Except Lucius, who's still, and this is really annoying to me, but he's like still going on about how he killed the governor. And everybody's like, dude, nobody gives a shit. Have you not noticed that a lot of, like, a lot more important shit has happened since you killed the, the governor? And he gets really pissed about it. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, Saul is basically just like, they don't, like, Saul's a little, or sorry, uh, Lucius is pretty petulant about it. Um, and Saul is just like, there's nothing we can do about it now, dude. Like that's, that's just the way it is. And Saul says something about like, um, you know, do you need more, more men on this flank to, to help you guard it? And Lucia's just like, oh, so now you don't trust me to guard the flank. And it's just like, Saul can't, Saul can't really do anything about it. Lucius is just being a dick. So Saul leaves him to his own devices. And then, during the next assault, the chaplain, uh, the chaplain of the Emperor's Children, Charmosian, kind of charges in on his personal land raider, and Lucius challenges him to a duel, and Lucius kills him pretty well outright. You know, he, he has him dead to rights in, in pretty splendid fashion, right? Because Charmosian has like this big heavy Crozius, and he's going in for like these big epic swings to try and get like an epic kill shot. Meanwhile, Lucius is just like forcing him to overextend himself every step of the way. And then finally, when he raises back, Charmusian raises back his Crozius in like this epic two-handed grip, he lets it linger a little too long, gathering all his strength. And Lucius just cuts his head off in, in a single stroke. It's pretty epic. Oh no, he cuts both his arms off and then he cuts oh, his head right. off. Yeah. So it's it yeah, like it's in pretty spectacular fashion. But as this is happening, Saul is running the entire defense outright. So while Lucius has won this big duel, Saul has thrown back this entire assault. Um, so everybody is like pretty happy with him. And so while Lucius is running around like, look, I killed Chaplain Charmosian. Everybody's like, that's great, man. Saul threw back the entire rest of the assault, but, you know, good for you. Right. So he gets a little salty about that, too, but... Uh, later on in that scene, Lucius has Charmosian's helmet as a trophy, and he's looking inside, and he pulls out Charmosian's personal communicator. He puts it in his ear, and he says, Eidolon, Eidolon, can you hear me? This is Lucius. And Eidolon comes back, oh, so you survived. I've got nothing to say to you. You'll be dead soon. Or something of the like. And Lucius, she goes, no, 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 I want to cut a deal. It's like, I will give you the palace if you let me rejoin the Legion. So Lucius has now betrayed the rest of the, the defense. Yep. Yeah, he uh, he cuts this deal with Eidolon. Um, then we get a, a scene uh, once again with Horus, um, but he's talking to Fulgrim this time. And basically what we learn... Um, 
long story short, uh, I, we don't need to get into this conversation too much, I don't think, but functionally, Fulgrim failed to turn to Ferris Manus, uh, and Horus is pissed about it. And he's yelling at Fulgrim, and Fulgrim gets super bitchy, um, but then Horus kind of calms him down by stroking his ego and being like, go prepare Istvan Five for the next phase of the plan. It's essential you're the best at this. You're so great, Fulgrim. Everybody loves you. And Fulgrim's like, I am so great. Thanks for noticing. And he goes and fucks off the Istvan 5. Right. So, let's see. Um, now, the with the word that the Emperor's children now have a way into the palace, the traitors have a way into the palace, the Luna Wolves have been, or not, sorry, the Emperor's children have been out of the fight thus far. They have not joined the assault. No, it's the it's the Mornival. The Sons of Horus and the Mornival. What did I say? You said the Emperor's children. Oh, right, right, right. So the um the Luna uh, God, the Emperor, Sons, Sons of, of Horus. Horus. Sorry. The Sons of Horus are now getting ready to join the assault, and the rest of the Mornival have touched down. So Abaddon and Axaman. Axaman are down there. And Torgadon and Loken gain get word um, because the Emperor's children are able to break the encryption. That so Tarek and Loken get word that the Mornival are down because the encryption is broken, and they're like, "Well, we're gonna go cut the head off the snake." And you know, some of the other Luna Wolves are like, "Nah, man, we want to go with you." You know, like this is all our fight, and they're like, "No, you got to stay here and." and uh, hold the palace for as long as you can. Every minute we hold this palace is another minute word gets to the emperor. Well, and, and Vipus, Nero Vipus, straight up tells him, he's like, this is a stupid plan. Right. He's not even like, I want to go with you. He's like, this is a dumb plan. So, you know, Vipus kind of says his piece, but Loken's like, no, we have to go do this brother to brother. And Torgadon and Loken are going to fight their way clear of the assault and head to the command post to try and kill Abaddon and Little Horus. Meanwhile, we get this little scene where the the chief apothecary Vaden, who was um, trying to stabilize Horus when he was stabbed with the anathame, is inside the palace. I, I imagine that he showed up because he knew too much about Horus uh, falling, so that's probably why he's there. So he's kind of running this um, aid center or whatever. And yeah. and uh, as he. Um, as he's like, hold him still so I can treat him. He hears this voice of like, yes, hold him still so we can kill him. And then he turns around and Eidolon's all there and Eidolon's just like, and crushes, uh, Vadden's skull with his thunder hammer. And yeah, uh, now the, now the emperor's children are in the palace with impunity or so they think. So Tarvid sees this going on. And he's like, man, if I had a hundred guys, I could really make well, that hurt. For, so first he's fighting them. And he's like, they came through the West. That's where Lucius is. I've got to go find Lucius. He's got to still be alive. I'm going to go try and find him. Which really doesn't make sense seeing his how he's the commander. He's like, I'm just going to abandon the front. Especially in right. this last desperate defense. But that's what happens. He goes, he manages to flank around. Um... And he realizes that, like, the Emperor's children, the traitor Emperor's children have left themselves exposed. And he's like, man, if I had 100 guys, I could punish these guys. Wait, 
I do have a hundred guys. <laughs> so he orders the Emperor's Children veterans to hand off to the Lone Wolves to, for the defense. And he's like, meet me, you know, take the, the servants corridors and meet me, you know, in this location and we're going to make him pay. And about that time, he turns up at the uh, flank where Lucius is supposed to be guarding. And Lucius is just standing in the middle of just a pile of dead emperor's children. And none of them are, none of them have a single bolter wound on them. They've all been killed by a sword. And Lucius has a, a sliver of glass and he carves a line on his face. And Tarvitz says something like, you betrayed your own men. Like, why would you do this? And Lucius goes on about how, like, I'm going to rejoin the Legion. I'm only here because of you, and I resent you for it. And the last thing Tarvid says is, well, who's that scar for? And Lucius just says, it's for you, Saul. And they launch into this epic duel. But Tarvid's is nowhere near the swordsman Lucius is. So Lucius is just toying with him this whole time, which is kind of his downfall. If he had killed him outright, it would have been different, but... You know, Saul is able to kind of hold his own for a while and talk a little bit of shit and really get under Lucius's skin because he's so vain and petty. And eventually, Saul gets disarmed but is able to kind of tackle Lucius to the ground and it goes from a sword fight to a just kind of a brawl. And the one of the last things um, Saul says to Lucius is, I remember what Loken told you on the trading mat. It's to understand your foe and do whatever is necessary to defeat them. And he disengages real quick, right as the hundred emperor's children show up. And Tarvitz just says, he's betrayed us, kill him. And in an instant, the emperor's children open fire on Lucius and he has to like um, duck and dodge and dive for cover. And it's kind of, it's a little ambiguous, like how he gets away, but Lucius isn't gone. Yeah, he he kind of gets a plot armored out of here, in my opinion. Um, but the the scene is so good that you're like, that's it's fine. You're fine with it, right? Uh, in right. My, at least I think so. But uh, so then the the emperor's children they so they come into the traitor's flanks and start to just really punish Eidolon for his hubris functionally. Right. Um, but I think Which we can really. We could talk about the kind of the fight with the Mornival and then probably wrap up here. Uh, yeah, we're getting long in the tooth again. Yeah. So Torgadon and Axamand are able to find Abaddon or uh, Torgadon, Torgadon and, Loken and Loken are able to find Abaddon and Axamand. And um, on their way through their fight, they're kind of like trying to stay low and work their way through the trenches they kind of get into a scrap with some world eaters and Loken comes face to face with Karn who is high as balls on butcher's nails. And the butcher's nails are a, is it a cortical implant? It's, it's a brain implant that, that it spikes your aggression to inhuman levels. And it's part of what makes the, world eaters such deadly warriors because they fight with like no self-preservation they're completely unhinged and Loken tries to talk to him and like get him to calm down but he is just like Karn is screaming about how he's he's on the eightfold path he must always go a step further and Loken tussles with him a little bit and is eventually able to throw him onto the plowshare of a land raider that's charging through 
And it's kind of a funny ending because Card is just like screaming pissed off on the dozer blade of this tank as he's being driven off into the distance. And Loken's just like, whew, that was close. Yeah. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of a fun interaction. And it, I think it's part of why the next fight goes the way that it does because Loken isn't quite as fresh as he would like to be for the fight that's about to happen. Yeah. So they find Abaddon and Aximand, and Abaddon is wearing his Terminator armor, and Aximand is just wearing regular power armor, and they kind of pair off here, and it's Abaddon versus Loken and Aximand versus Torgaddon. And I actually think the more interesting fight here is Torgaddon versus Aximand, um, because as they're fighting each other, um, you know, Torgaddon's talking to Aximand, and they're talking back and forth, and Aximand says... You know, the War Master only decreed that Loken had to die. He didn't say anything about you. You can come back to us. And Torgaddon's like, no, I'm not. Like, the, you guys have gone off the deep end here. Like, this, look at yourselves, you know? Um, and as Loken and Abaddon, they're talking shit to each other. I think my, my favorite uh, my favorite line from Abaddon is, the War Master asked me to bring the Jesteran, and I told him it'd be a waste. <laughs> yeah, it would be an insult. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and I mean, it would be because, I mean, it, it's very clear that, like, the, God, the Terminator armor is just so fucking powerful that yeah. Loken really doesn't have a chance. Um, but again, we, we start to see some cracks in Aximand of, like, this, maybe uh, we have kind of damned ourselves here, and maybe this wasn't the greatest idea. But he ends up, he does beat Torgaddon, um, and he takes his head off. And Loken sees that, and he kind of loses it. Um, and then a building falls on them. Um, right, so Loken almost kills Abaddon because he's able to uh, hit a pillar and drop a ceiling on Abaddon and kind of pin him for a minute. And Loken gets his chainsword right in Abaddon's chest, but Abaddon's Terminator armor is so powerful he just throws him away. And then right at that moment, as Abaddon is about to run down Loken and kill him, the Diazire crashes through the building and separates them. And the whole building falls down, uh, and that's the end of the fight. Yep. So, really, we come to the end of the book, and it's it's really the... The Loyalists are kind of waiting to die uh, because they know they can't take on the DSRA, um, and the War Master is about to start bombarding the planet. Um, he pulls, he ends up pulling his troops back and bombards them again. But one of the things it talks about that I think is the most interesting here is when Axeman, like Abaddon, is looking at Axeman, and Axeman seems to be displaying some regret of what's happened mm -hmm. here, and he's like, "We're going to have to watch him from now on." Right. It, then it just kind of it, it talks about how like Loken is pinned in the rubble from the DSRA coming through, um, and then Saul and the rest of the loyalists are all just kind of sitting in this War Singer's chapel, and they're just like we're just going to sit here and we're going to take the bombardment because we've we've made it to the point that we can make it to. There's there's nothing to go. We can't go on from here functionally, and that's that's what they do, and that's that's kind of how the book ends. Um, and, and that's, that's galaxy in flames. Yeah. The, the last scene with Loken, he's, he's pinned in the rubble. The, the, the building collapsing was so bad that, uh, 
little Horus and uh, Abaddon never found him. So the last scene with Loken is that he's pinned in the rubble. He can't feel his legs. His uh, chest is completely caved in, basically. He can barely breathe. And he's just looking up the sky. And all he sees is this flash from space. And that's kind of it. And, you know, there. I think there's a little exposition at the end with the War Master who's like, you know, that was just... That was just the beginning. The real massacre happens at Istvan Five, where what is if like five legions are gonna seven, oh, seven, seven legions. legions are gonna are gonna come to destroy them, and they need to get there and get dug in so that um, they can begin the next phase of their uh, rebellion. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So, favorite parts. Um. I liked the duel with Lucius and the War Singer. I, actually, I liked the scene on the moon with uh, Eidolon and Saul because I thought that was that was a pretty fun interaction between the Lord Commander and just a file officer. And, you know, Eidolon has a moment there where you're like, man, I kind of like this guy because... He, he kind of strokes Saul's ego a little bit and makes him feel really good about what they had just done. I like uh, the scenes with Rylanor. He's a pretty interesting character to me. Boy, I think the um, all the character interactions are just really solid in this one. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I really loved how we got kind of the culmination of Saul's character here. And then, I, like I said, my favorite part of the book is just that the descriptiveness that he gets into of the virus bombing, and you just really yeah. get a good, it good so, idea of what the brutality is. If you like that, have you read No No Fear yet? No, I haven't. You're gonna love that one because Dan Abnett d- takes that to eleven, so it's gonna be great. Yep, but uh, no, this is you know you said it before we started recording that you might like this one better than Horus rising. I don't know if it's on that level for me, but it's close. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely made me kind of reevaluate my ranking of the books, which I need to actually sit down and, and, uh, maybe we'll do like a, a tier list, uh, for the books at the end. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. That would be um, fun. Yeah. So that is galaxy and flames. Uh, God, I, I don't, I don't really think there's anything I would change about it because I think it really, it once again continues to set the stage for the next 10,000 years of this universe. You know, it's this, the, the superhuman emotion is kind of overlooked um, when we talk about the space Marines, because there's this kind of bullshit misconception. And I think it's on behalf of the dog shit writing we get sometimes is like Astartes are just, they're pressed out of a mold. They're all the same. They don't have any emotions. They just follow orders but the, the superhuman emotion that's felt when they are betrayed is insane. You know, it's, it's, it, it's a feeling like, that is indescribable. You know, they, the, the depths of their, their anger, their sadness, their regret. You know, like, how do you even begin to describe it? Yeah. One more thing. I, I would like to shout out a friend of the podcast, uh, my friend Nick. Um, hope you're listening and hope you're enjoying it. But... He finished the book. He's been reading along with us. Never, never read Warhammer books before at all. I sent you the picture of what he sent me, but he, as soon as he finished, he was just like, 
what the fuck just happened? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, dude, I remember, I remember finishing this book and I was reading it in high school and I closed the book at the end and I just sat there in silence and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what am I going to tell people? What do oh. I do? How do I go on? Is oh, there anything his, left? His favorite character is Lucius, and he's like so mad at Lucius. Oh right yeah, now. dude, he and, snakes everybody. Yeah, he's like the Emperor's children just completely abandoned their mantra, and I'm like, oh dude, wait until Fulgrim, my sweet oh, summer child. Buddy, buddy, that is the tip of the iceberg. Man, you, <laughs> the cornholing has yet to begin. <laughs> that's that's one way to put it. Uh, anyway, uh, you wanna you wanna plug socials, and then we'll get out of here. Um, let's plug the next book first. The next book is Flight of the Eisenstein by Sandy Mitchell, I think. Is Who it Sandy Mitchell? I can't remember now. I don't have it here on my shelf. James Swallow. Oh, James Swallow, yeah. Yep, no, another great um, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one because we get a lot of Death Guard perspective, and Nathaniel Garrow is a great character. He shows up quite a bit later on. Pretty, pretty strong character, in my opinion, and I like how... The, the Death Guard are portray- portrayed, like the opening scene with them is a really strong betrayal of their legion, so. Mm-hmm. Yep, but yep. Uh, it's it's an exciting one. Um, I think we, well, you know, quick channel update here. We we are trying to, trying to get to a show every two weeks. Uh, we were going for a month, but, you know, we're just having such a good time rolling through these books that, we're trying to, to up that a little bit. Um, so look for us, you know, roughly every two weeks. Um, we'll try to keep up with that consistently. Um, some of the books are pretty thick. So what we might do is a part one and a part two. Um, but uh, yeah. And then again, email us your feedback, legioncast18 at gmail.com. And check us out on Instagram at legioncast18. Yes, it's yeah, at Legion, LegionCast18. Yeah, at LegionCast18. And Twitter, at LegionCast, a Horse Heresy podcast. Um, I've been doing a bunch of retweets on there. Um, I thought I had like an award-winning tweet, but didn't get any traction. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was pretty happy about that. And then um, I asked my brother about it. He's like, oh, no, that's a British thing. And I was like, that's weird. The Brits are kind of um, They are weird. But uh, uh, yeah, check us out on social media. Email, email us your feedback. Read the next book. It's a good one. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, we will see you next time. I am Warwick, and you are Brandon. Yep. Yes, we are, and we will see you next time. Le- Until then, Legionnaires, uh, you know, take cover. Take cover.